0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org.
1: Thanks, Diana. And thank you, Victor, for doing the sound. Since we're talking about generosity this evening as being a parami, I'd like to start by doing a generous act, and that is thanking Diana and Victor by a bow for their volunteering to help make this evening successful. Thank you. Much appreciated. How's the temperature for everybody? Warm enough? Is there any? uh, (laughs) Yeah, maybe we could open... Something, or you get a little air moving.
0: Ah, That's great.
1: There's two schools of Buddhism. One is that you have to suffer, and the other one is that you really don't have to suffer that much. (laughs) (laughs) Let's practice the second school
0: tonight.
1: (laughs) Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, This is the second Dharma talk I've given in two days, and in the next four days, I'm going to give three more. Uh, It's an embarrassment of riches. Uh, Somehow, my life just uh, haphazardly goes along, and every once in a while, there's a peak of experience. And so I'm in the middle of this right now. It's very exciting for me to have an opportunity to do so much sitting on the Dharma seat. Last night it was at Coastside Vipassana, and if you have never been to Coastside Vipassana, I highly recommend it. It meets at the Montara Youth Hostel, which is north of Half Moon Bay on Highway 1, and it actually uh, meets in the building where uh, they used to have the whistles and sounds to uh, announce to ships going by that there were rocks there. And so it's a large old building with an old wood stove in it. The waves rolling up. Last night it was kind of foggy, and there were two openings in the fog, and shafts of sunlight were coming down and shining on the waves. So it's a marvelous place to sit, and they have a wonderful program. If you'd like to see their program, they have a great website, Coastside Vipassana. You can just Google it. And they have wonderful teachers, many of whom come from IMC, and uh, meetings on Wednesday evening, and then sometimes programs on the weekend. So after tonight... I have the pleasure of doing the Dharma Talk this coming Monday right here. It'll be my first Monday Dharma Talk. And uh, the topic is going to be, may sound a little abstract, the sound of silence. So there'll be lots of pauses in my talk that night. So tonight, we're going to think about the paramis or the paramitas, uh, two different words that mean roughly the same thing. One, parami, is a Pali word. Pali is the ancient vernacular language that was very similar to the language that the Buddha probably used in his Sangha. Probably not exact, but close. And Sanskrit is uh, the language that was kind of like Latin is now. It's a, it was at the time not a live language, but it was used because it was kind of a focal point or reference point. And so many of the ancient writings were written in Sanskrit, even though very few people actually spoke it. So we have Parami in the Pali, Paramita in the Sanskrit, The etymology of parami is two. One is high or exalted uh, parami, which refers to the practice of the ten paramis that we traditionally recognize in Theravadan Buddhism as being a high form of practice a practice really suited for the people that were identified as bodhisattvas. And if you're a student of ancient writings, you're probably alerted that when you use the term bodhisattva, you don't necessarily mean Theravadan Buddhism, which is the tradition that we come from. So just a quick little history lesson. Uh, For those that may not be aware of it, the actual words of the Buddha were carefully memorized during his lifetime and then maintained as an oral tradition for several, several hundred years and then finally written. And by the time they were written, there were somewhere between 15 and 18 schools of Buddhist thought and In one of the schools, the writing was done on palm leaves, and those palm leaves ended up moving to Sri Lanka through the auspices of a famous guy named Emperor Ashoka. And Ashoka is one of the great stories of the ancient world. Uh, A man who was a warrior and an emperor who partway through his career recognized through seeing a monk on a field of battle after the battle was over, he recognized that there was something way more in life than outer achievement and power. And he dedicated the rest of his life to learning what that monk knew, which was the Dharma which had been passed along for several hundred years from the time of the Buddha. And through the efforts and support of Ashoka, a Sangha was established in what we call Nass, Sri Lanka, which was Ceylon, an island off the south coast of India. And there it rested for millennia. Finally, about in 1885, British explorers encountered these the passing on of these documents. So the original palm leaves weren't there. They had been decayed and decomposed, but had been copied for two millennia. And when the British encountered these, they were fascinated. Here was a school of thought that was radically relevant to modern life, and it came from more than 2,000 years before. And so the translations into English began about 1885, and over the last 120 years or so, we have the teachings that came through this long chain. Well, along the way, about the year zero, another school of Buddhist thought became very solidified, called the Mahayana school or tradition. And the Mahayana tradition became very popular. And so the first tradition, the Theravadan, the Way of the Elders, which was passed along verbally and then on these palm leaves, was at that time uh, old. It was 500 years old by the time the Mahayana tradition became established. And in the Theravadan tradition, the path of moving ahead in life involved paramis, and I'll identify as what those paramis are for you. Um, but it turns out for a different purpose. In the Mahayana tradition, the new thought that came in, the sort of uh, revolutionizing, some people say, the Protestant version of Buddhism, was when Mahayana started, the thought was that a bodhisattva was a higher form of being, the highest form of being that one could attain to, someone who would give their life to assuring the freedom of all beings in the world. And so, indeed, in the Zen tradition today, serious Zen practitioners take a, a vow that they their life is dedicated to ensuring the freedom of all beings. So imagine the the extent of work that's required to ensure that all are free. So the reason I mention all of this uh, is that is if you look for paramis, you'll find many different kinds of paramis. Some lists have ten, some have six, some have four And so it's kind of a moving target. And many of the teachings of the Paramis are thought to be post-Ashokan. So probably more than 250 years after the actual person, Siddhartha Gautama, who we feel is the origin of this teaching. So now that we've... Said about the Parmes, there are a few universals for all the lists of Parmes. And one of the universals among all the lists, whether it's one, five, six, ten, is that the first is Dana. Dana being the Pali word that we translate as generosity. So tonight, my goal is to spend a few minutes talking about Donna and then to talk about the practice of Donna because to know Donna intellectually is one thing but to know Donna in your heart so that your first intuition, your first intention in reacting or responding to your world is generosity. That's another step. So we'll try to cover both levels, both uh, as kind of an intellectual overview, and then to talk about incorporating, uh, putting it inside our hearts so that our hearts spontaneously are dana-based hearts. Okay, so the basis of dana is through the teachings of 2,500 years, that it gradually allows us as practitioners to slowly relinquish the hold that clinging has on our life. And so Donna, if you think about it, is almost the opposite of clinging. Clinging is the grasping that wants to hold, that wants to possess, that wants to keep attachment. Those of you that are psychologists know that there's a huge school of psychology about attachment theory. How we get attached, how as human beings, one of the founders of attachment theory was very famous in saying we are biologically willed to attach. In other words, it's not a choice. It's not volitional. We attach spontaneously, inevitably, Continuously, we attach, we fall in love, we love, we cherish, and that which we love and cherish, we want to hang on to. So this is uh, kind of the human nature that has been human nature for thousands of years. And the teaching, the Dharma, uh, the Buddha's insight was that we, yes, We have these attachments, nothing wrong or blameful about having these attachments. But if we wish to be free in our lives, if we wish to have our own life, to make our own choices, to create our own image in the world, to project our values and our love and our appreciation onto the world, if we wish that, then we need to free ourselves of these attachments. We may still cherish these attachments. We may still... I'm a, I'm a grandfather, and I would never give up this feeling of attachment that I have for my little granddaughter and my little grandson. It's something that goes way beyond anything conceptual. It's, it's hard to put into words. It's, uh, the Buddha famously has said that the love of a mother for her child is a model for how we all can open our hearts generously to the world. So I feel that just spontaneously with my grandchildren, and it's a fabulous part of my life. I wouldn't change it for a world. But, The freedom comes from noticing this and not being compelled by it and not unconsciously being driven by it. So this is what makes Buddhism, I think, very complex and and very beautiful and not easily categorized. At first, I mentioned the translations in the 1885, 1890 era. And the first translations that came left lay practitioners, people that read with, let's say, a casual approach to it, left people feeling that it was pessimistic, that identifying that life had unsatisfactoriness inevitable in it and that we have attachments and that these attachments inevitably will be broken. But realizations like this, noted in the Dharma, were kind of bad news. And so Buddhism got a little bit of uh, a nihilistic or negative aspect, overview, image to it. As we understand the teachings, and for practitioners who do meditation, I think this is the best way to understand the teachings, To to take the words of the Dharma from Dharma teachers, people that give talks, people that write books. To take those words lightly and then to find the truth within yourself. The Buddha is famous for having used the word ehipasiko. Ehipasiko. It means come, try, see, just see, be curious. Just try. So that was the the ancient intention for the teachings to come forth, for people to try. Does it help you in your life? Does it help you be free? Does it help you be a more effective whoever you are? If it does, adopt it. If it doesn't, let it be. So That's the ground rule for tonight, pasiko. Always the grand rule. I think uh, one of the things I most value about the Buddhist teachings is this generosity of giving me the opportunity to choose what works and what doesn't work. I don't have to adopt anything. I don't have to believe anything. I don't have to propound or... Have faith in anything. So the teachings 2,500 years ago were radical. They came into a world where there were many, many holy people with their holy programs and their holy language and their holy rules and their holy pantheon of gods. And you could spend lifetimes trying to learn all of this, let alone adopt it. And the Buddha came along and said, you know what? Ehipasiko. Give what I say a try. It's phenomenally giving, generous. So in terms of dana, then, the opportunity in learning the dharma about dana is for us to adopt it to give it a try. The Buddha, through the Dharma, has told us that there are stages of development that are particularly relevant for lay practitioners. For the monastic order, things are different. But I trust that nobody here has... uh, Do we have any monastics with us this evening? Okay. So tonight... We're focusing on the lay practice teaching of Donna. There's a whole other approach to it, a whole other um, stepwise progression for the monastic order. But for lay practitioners, 2,500 years ago, the teaching was to learn for years at a time through being generous. The generosity had two aspects to it. One aspect was forgiveness. And so isn't that interesting to think about forgiving as being a form of generosity? So practitioners, lay practitioners at ancient times were challenged. Learn to forgive. Identify those places in your life where there's a resistance, where there's a holding, where you have a view of somebody that has a debt. They, there's a debt there. It's not one-to-one. It's something owed. And so the thought was, practice Donna. Practice generosity. Forgive. Forgive. So I'm just going to pause for a second and let us kind of notice what comes into our mind with the thought of forgive. So we'll just uh, just be quiet for about a half a minute. We'll just notice. Forgive. So that was one aspect. Another aspect of the generosity practice is appreciation. So you notice that we bowed to our volunteers who are helping make this evening successful for us. Small appreciation. And the teaching of the Dharma says that this is important not only For Victor and Diana, there's some value in it for them, hopefully. But it's really for us as the ones who appreciate. We're the ones that get the greater benefit. What a blessing it is to be able to appreciate. So I tell an ancient story. (laughs) I won't tell it as well as the Buddha does. But this is from the Pali Canon. In ancient times, there was an old woman who lived in a very remote part of the kingdom, up in the hills. And she was a dedicated practitioner, a lay practitioner, not a monastic, not part of the so-called Buddha Sangha but a part of the lay sangha. And always since that time and actually previous to that, generosity was a path. So just because the Buddha has it as number one on the Parami list doesn't mean that he invented it. It was around. And so she was very aware of it. And all her life she wanted to be generous, but she lived so far away that it was hard to find opportunities to be generous. And in particular, traditionally, people were generous with the monastics. Kind of the arrangement was that the monastics became homeless and dedicated their lives uh, to practice without being able to deal with money or jobs or insured income or whatever they were totally dependent on the generosity of the lay people. The lay lay people, on the other hand, worked in fields, bought and sold, hired people, saved money, uh, created capital, and so forth. But they didn't focus as intensely on practice. And so the two kind of balanced each other out. So this old lady who's living up in the hills, Wants to be generous, but the monks are a long way away. One day, a monk, Mahakasipa, I don't know why I remember that name, but that's his name, came up and he drifted up and came by her house and she was so grateful. She went out and just spent as much time as she could giving him food and washing his feet and making his life as gentle and pleasurable as possible. And so the Buddha tells this story to illustrate that the generosity doesn't depend on quantity, but it really depends on the condition of the heart. And so here is the story of an old woman that all her life, her heart was conditioned to be open and generous and giving, and she just lacked opportunity. So in the Dharma teaching, that's the critical part of generosity. It's not about quantity. It's not about what you give. In fact, what you give away can be called uh, a mind image. You're not really giving away something that has lasting value. You're giving something. Of course, if you're giving appreciation, that doesn't have to, there's no concern about value. But if you're giving objects, really what you're giving is this mind object, this mind image of an object. So I'm going to pause just for a second here. And just have us think for a minute about our giving and how we hold it. So we'll just kind of let thoughts, memories of our giving and how we hold it come. And we'll just notice it in silence here for about 30 seconds. So I'll just share a little story about uh, an act of appreciation and forgiveness and generosity that I had the pleasure of being part of. All through my life, I had very few men in my life. My dad was an absent dad. My stepdad was an absent stepdad. I had a grandma and a grandpa, My grandpa was probably the most important guy in my life. And so, you know, I'd look around and I'd see all these kids that would show up at school with dads. And it was like, whoa, that must be great. And so dad, thinking of Father's Day, uh, was always kind of a big deal for me. And. The one guy in my life that had any sort of dadness besides my grandpa when I was very young was my uncle, Uncle Jack. And he lived 3000 miles away uh, on the East Coast. Most of the time, part and part of the time he lived in Australia and he did lots of international travel and he would show up at my house and he always had time for me. And he would reach in his pocket and take out these coins that he'd collected on his travels. And he's really interesting-looking coins. And just seeing these coins kind of put me in touch with these faraway exotic places that he'd been. So I had this great feeling for him all my life. And as he got older, he developed Alzheimer's and ended up in an Alzheimer's facility in Florida. And I went down to visit him one time. And walked in, and he didn't recognize me. There was not not a shred of recognition. He was, you folks that have been to Alzheimer's facilities, know is kind of the picture. He was sitting in his chair with a tray on the chair, wheelchair, hands on the tray, kind of uh, sleepily getting through his days. Nonverbal, had to be fed. And so here was my guy, my hero, my, you know, the, the guy that brought the world to me when I was a child. And I wanted to give him something. How could I give anything to a person who, you know, was really almost not there mentally? And I remembered that he, all his life, he loved the ocean and this particular facility was about a block and a half from a dock in Florida, where and the dock went out into a bay, um, part of the ocean. And so I asked the nurses if I could take him out, and they said, oh, no, 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 don't, don't do that. He won't notice, and you know, it won't mean anything to him, and it'll be dangerous, and there's streets to cross and so forth. So when the nurses weren't looking... <laughs> Out the door we went. And we went down on this dock, and I rolled him down the dock, and he started drumming. And his hands went up and down on this tray, and there was this loud drumming sound. And he was just so animated. No words. But somehow with this drumming on this tray, there was just this excitement and vitality. And so we stayed there for a while, and then I rolled him back. And I I thought about it afterwards. I mean, clearly, as I tell it, you can tell I'm a little teary about it. It's it's very tender for me. But I am so grateful that for some reason I thought of that, and then that I thought, you know, why not, even though it's not, kosher, so to speak, it's not the appropriate thing to do, to just make it happen anyway. And so for me, I consider it a, a really an act of grace. I mean, it's not that I'm so clever that I find these opportunities all the time. It's, you know, it's very seldom, but that was, it was perfect. It worked for him, and it was just fabulous for me. And so it incorporated a forgiveness in a sense that, you know, um, being able to be with a nonverbal person who doesn't recognize you is, you know, there, there's an act of forgiveness there, an act of generosity. But the value was for me. So that's a little bit of thought about Donna. So a few more things to be said about Donna. But rather than say them, what I'd like to do is offer us a chance inwardly to experience them. So I have a little reading. and What I'm going to do is ask that we settle into a sitting posture and Maybe close eyes, if that's comfortable for you, or just downcast, unfocused eyes. And the intention here is that the words about generosity now seep into our consciousness in a way that our intention becomes generous, and our inspiration is to be generous, that spontaneously there will be just a little bit more warmth in our hearts when the opportunity to be generous comes our way. And in order to foster that, I'll just be quiet just a little bit, just at the end of the talk here. And then I'll finish while we're still quiet and still in a meditative place. I'll finish by reading some excerpts from the Dharma that relate To a generous, open givingness. And then at the end of that, I'll ring the bell and we'll have a chance to exchange. But just for now, just kind of let the words about generosity, acceptance, forgiveness, open heartedness. Let all those words kind of seep in and create a nonverbal resonance with us. So this first short reading is from the Metta Sutta. From the Sutta Nipata, one of our Theravadin Dharma transmission. Documents. And the sutta has been speaking about loving kindness and what it is to give loving kindness. And at the end, quoting the words of the Buddha, and just as might a mother with her life protect her son, that was her only child so let him then for every living thing maintain loving kindness in being. And since in this modern time we're aware of gender equity, and just as might a father with his life protect the daughter that was his only child, so let her then, for every living thing, maintain loving kindness in being. And the second reading is from the Anguttara Nikaya, again spoken by the Buddha. Bhikkhus, practitioners, When the heart deliverance of loving kindness is maintained in being, made much of, used as one's vehicle, used as one's foundation, established, consolidated, and properly managed, then eleven blessings can be expected. You say, what are the eleven? Here they are the 11 blessings of having an open and generous heart. A person sleeps in comfort. A person wakes in comfort. A person dreams no evil dreams. A person is dear to other human beings. A person is dear to other non human beings. Good fortune guards this person. No fire or poison or weapon harms this person. This person's mind can be quickly concentrated. The expression on this person's face is serene. And finally, this person dies well without falling into confusion. Those are the 11 blessings that can be expected when one has an open and generous heart. Well, as is our custom, we have a few minutes left over after the talk where it's appropriate for us to have an exchange. And let me just cast this exchange in the language of Donna. It's an opportunity to give to the Sangha your thoughts, your warm memories, your coaching, your suggestions. So it's a chance for us to give to each other, and it's a chance for us to appreciate each other. And as I mentioned before, appreciation is probably more important for the appreciator than the appreciatee. So all of us can lower our natural resistance to speaking in public and offer generously to the rest of us a chance to appreciate so let me just ask you to reflect on Donna in your life. Has someone been generous to you in a particular way? Have you found a way to be generous to somebody else in a particular way? What is the practice of Donna for you, this wonderful parami, this parami that allows for growth, and transcendence and I see Diana has a roving microphone so we'll move that around and please share with us and share your name first of all if you would please
2: Mary I'm hoping other people will say stuff but just so we don't waste any seconds Uh, It just struck me that Maureen, who often is a helper also, has been tremendous in in my life for just offering, listening, and
1: laughing with me. And it's just a wonderful gift. And your name was? Mary. Mary. Thanks, Mary.
2: I'm Kim. Is this on?
1: (laughs) Uh, Hold it close. Okay. There you go. Um,
2: I'm new here. Um, Just been here a couple of times. But anyway, this idea of generosity, I was just thinking about some of the volunteer work I've
1: signed up for over the last few years and started out with the idea of offering and being generous with my time and helping make websites, actually. And I've now devolved into sort of
2: resenting the time that I'm spending on this, (laughs) these activities. And so I think that I need to reprogram my mind and get back to that original impulse.
1: I'm glad you mentioned that because uh, I think, you know, I just, uh, from my own experience, one of the challenges of generosity is that it kind of makes us think, oh, gosh, we can never give enough, it's like, you know, we could just give, 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 give. The, the Dharma is very clear that it really depends on the intention in our heart. And so it's not about the volume we give, not the, not the hours, not the money, not the weight or whatever it is. It's really about developing that place in our heart that intends to offer loving kindness and generosity. And so that's your practice. And anything that you do in terms of websites and so forth, that, you know, that's great. That's, that's gravy, tangible examples. But if the Buddha were here, my sense is that he would be appreciating the generosity in your heart and the website stuff would be peripheral. So
2: as long as I'm doing the website stuff, I'm, I might as well. Be generous. (laughs) (laughs) That's
1: right. That's right. Yeah, we shouldn't feel a sense of depletion in our generosity. If we're feeling depleted, it's a good sign. Let's let's just hold this for a minute. Let's just notice: Are we attached? Do we want something back? Yeah. And it's so natural. So natural because we're in a society where. There's a lot of generosity, but there's also very high expectations and lots of competition and, you know, wanting to be the most this or that. So we wish you have the fullest of hearts. Thanks. (laughs) I think there's somebody back over there. Could you pass it back that way?
0: I'm interested in words and generosity and generate have the same roots. How would you, since that's the case, how would you elaborate that? What's being generated? Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. Your
1: name was? ernan none. Well, what occurs to me, first of all, is this wonderful symbiotic relationship that traditional... Southeast Asian Buddhist societies have between the monastic order and the lay order. We don't have quite the same thing in this country. We're mostly lay practitioners, but some monastic. And Gil is very careful and conscientious in bringing monastics and keeping the value of the monastic tradition and so forth. So this is, I think it's a rich part of our coming here to the center to have continuing contact with monastics. But that's what springs to mind in terms of generate, that, that it's, it's almost, you can imagine a generator, that each time the lay gives to the monastic, and the monastic practices, and the lay learns and deepens their practice, you know, it, it, it's kind of a, uh, what we would call, I guess, uh uh, the opposite of a vicious cycle what 's the opposite of a vicious cycle? a beneficial cycle virtuous yeah, vigorous, virtuous cycle, and so there 's generation as the movement happens, and as we're, as we let go of our attachments, that movement can just spontaneously flow, and every time we give something, it goes out, and resonances happen and other people give. Has anybody ever gone through the Golden Gate Bridge tollgate um, toll booth and had somebody in front pay for them? Yeah, yeah. Who ever started that? Yeah. Who who do we credit with this generosity? <laughs> it's, it's delightful.
0: Yeah.
1: Yes, over here, Diana. Do you have another?
2: So um, I just had uh, my name is Ajay by the way. So uh, your name I, is Ajay. Ajay. Yeah. So Ajay. I just had this question. I was just wondering where do you actually the, draw the line between uh, being generous versus being uh, you know self a lot, lot of self sacrificing. Like you know, uh, let's say you're you're being generous in like for example at work, right? You have your you let your co-workers like take spotlight and presenting something that you knew worked at versus um, so for example, right at work. Uh, for example, a couple of weeks back, I was a, there was this thing that I worked on, but um, there was a colleague of mine who wanted to present it. But though I felt happy that okay, let him. I just wanted to give a chance for him to present the stuff. there's this little feeling in me is like I have worked on this stuff, so why should I let him present those whatever uh, stuff that I've worked on, right? But I just had a small thing, but I I, I was also happy on the other hand that, you know, like I'm just letting him present stuff and stuff. So I just don't know what the answer is, but I just wanted to put this question to you. Hmm. My
1: sense is uh, that that is a wonderful opportunity for you to let him know how pleased you are that he's able to present material that you've worked on. You know, and if you feel it sincerely in your heart, I think that. Uh, this person couldn't help but be appreciative of maybe they just hadn't noticed it or maybe they're a little embarrassed to say, you know what, really, that's yours. And uh, But I would definitely identify that. Uh, I, I, it's, I don't think it's uh, inappropriate or impolite on your part if you just say, I'm so happy that you have a chance to present this that I've worked on, and you know, I really wish you well with it. Does that kind of fit for you? Do you think that that would help kind of open something so you can you two can share this instead of having a sense of?
2: So there's no sense of uh, uh, there's nothing like very negative about like sharing it. But it was okay if I would rather present it, you know, like it's 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 more it's it's more beneficial for me, right? So it's that selfish nature that um you start to uh uh introspect on like hmm. yeah so so I, I just wanted to know like is there a line that you can draw between like being overly generous versus hmm. uh yeah, you know, like, definitely letting go of uh uh like your ambitions or whatever.
1: So. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I and I think that the Dharma would say that you know you really need to check with your heart. And if if your heart is not Open and feeling generous, maybe there's a reason, and maybe there's something that you need to adjust or whatever. Uh, yeah, we're not all saints we we need to <laughs> we need to kind of have things balance in in you know others' favor but also our favor too. We need to be generous with ourselves and acknowledge what we've done. So good for you for noticing that. The heart will know. Did you ha- raise your hand, Diana? Did you? Oh, did we have another person that would share? Yeah,
0: over here. Um, is this OK? Yep. just name is is, um, Gadi. Um, so I just kind of wanted to comment on sort of putting things into practice. Um, so I've, I've been consciously trying to practice generosity for a year or so um and sort of what i noticed is when you actually do something generous it doesn't necessarily feel good at that time um, but what i noticed is it fosters a general attitude and when i kind of reflect back um the moments where i was i feel i was really generous was not necessarily when i gave something but when i noticed something when i related to someone in a different way so it wasn't really the the act of giving Um, my time or my uh, resources, but it was actually connecting with someone. And and sometimes it it really made a big difference, just that um, that observation and that connection. And it's not something I could have done if I didn't have that general kind of Mm. attitude. Mm. uh,
1: Yeah. Yeah. We don't I guess we don't always feel like we're spontaneously wanting to be generous, but having some sort of discipline to it so that we kind of, it's almost like uh, pausing and having a time of silence before you eat a meal. It just kind of helps you be more present for what's going on. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I, I, it actually hadn't occurred to me that there may be times in our lives where we don't spontaneously feel generous, But it's still a time to be generous and we can kind of do it and then enjoy it later. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, we are at the end of our time together. So I'd like to invite us to, again, get into a sitting posture. And as we honor the tradition of the Dharma, it's very important to also honor the tradition of sharing merit. And so the wish is for the value that we have created this evening together and what we've done and what we've said and in the hearts that we go into the world with from tonight, that the benefit of that flows to all beings everywhere. And the phrases I use, you can use your own phrases. May all beings be safe from inner and outer harm. May all beings be happy just as we are and just as they are. May all beings be healthy and strong. May all beings be at ease Living vitally in our world, just as it is. And may all beings be free. We dedicate the value and merit of our time together that this intention is fulfilled. Well, many good wishes to all. Enjoy Father's Day, all you fathers. Enjoy generously offering to fathers for all of those that you have fathers. (laughs) It's a nice time, a nice tradition we have. Drive safely on the way home. It's been a real pleasure to be with you this evening.